Ross, finally. Welcome to the Tenzin Show. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yes, absolutely. So I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, tete-a-tete, a little conversation with you yeah. about your spiritual journey, because I think um, that it's very interesting, because I know that you come, you hail from a completely different part of the world, from the West. How did you develop such intense interest in Tibetan Buddhism? Because you were ordained when you were 21 um, at the yep. Tibetan monastery, and you were introduced to Tibetan Buddhism when you were only 16 years old. That's a tender age. Um, you must have met some great masters. You know, you've had your own pilgrimage travels. You've had your own retreats. So tell me a little bit about your spiritual journey uh, and how has this been for you? Okay, so my journey probably began when I was very young, probably about four or five. So the local town that I'm in, it has a monastery that the late 16th Karmapa had built. And uh, originally my mother had gotten into Buddhism and she even had some dreams. Like uh, if you're familiar with the story of Milarepa, she yes. had a dream about a tower and she heard the name Milarepa and she didn't even know about the story yet. And she had a dream about the local Rinpoche, even though she had not seen his photo or heard about him. So I remember going up to the temple. I didn't know much, but I would say that was my initial contact, you know. And uh, obviously, as a Buddhist, I would believe it's a previous life connection and everything comes from causes and conditions. So there's a karmic link with Buddhism, which is why I resonated with it and had the interest in it. Sure. And, um, yeah, I always kind of gravitated towards it and I didn't take refuge until I was 16 and at that period of my life I was uh, probably getting into trouble and didn't have the best friends and um, when I took refuge even though I didn't know what it was my mom basically said you're going to get this Tibetan name I said oh that's cool I want to do it but I didn't know what it was about you know and it's like uh, there's this moment in the refuge ceremony where they snap their fingers and that's the moment that you receive the transmission of refuge now for tibetans most of them are babies right when they get refuge so they cut their hair but uh you know it's almost like they're really the transmission that takes place and you know though i was so young i kind of just became obsessed with buddhism i would read whatever i could and even i ignored my mom you know she was just like that's all you want to talk about so that was really my original, you know, connection. And I would also say that for us, we believe that an enlightened being or a great master, due to their realization, due to their great compassion, the aspiration prayers of enlightened beings are very powerful. So a monastery like Yawan Karmapas, you know, when you make a connection with it, due to his aspiration prayers to be benefited, um, your karma, if you have merit, it can really ripen. And in front of such, you know, the sacred supports and blessed objects and all. So, yeah, that's the intro. True. So I, I'm sure initially you had no idea what's going on. What was your I did, mental state like when you first, you know, went into this, studying this? Well, I didn't know what was going on, but... You know, my refuge master, whose name is Kempakarta Rinpoche, he was a very senior lama from Tibet. 
he passed away recently at 96. Okay. And I think that, you know, having no exposure to the Dharma, having no exposure to holy beings, to see such an authentic teacher, such a well-trained, older Lama who really embodied the teachings, it just made an impact on my mind. It was so impressive, you know? Reading the right. books, encountering teachers like Dilgo Chansir Rinpoche, Sixteen Gallon Karmapa. To me, it was like, even as a youth, when I saw their photos, it just spoke to me that they were so clearly, you know, incredible beings. And it was inspiring, you know? I mean, I've kind of fallen off the bandwagon, but when I was a youth, I really wanted to be a yogi, you know? I would look at the photos of these great masters, meditators, yogis, and I wanted to go to the mountains and all of that, you know? Yes. Yeah. I understand. I mean, now you're no more a monk. Of course, you lead yeah. a very normal life. I mean, it, it is normal to lead a life. But yeah. In general sense, you're no more a monk now. But when you were a monk living in the monastery, living at the monastery, what was your life like? Well, my life... This, one of the, I think, issues with monasticism in the West is that we don't have the infrastructure that they have mm -hmm. in Asia. Whereas, sure. And that's where you see a lot of Western monks. They don't typically stay with it forever because in the East, you have a sponsor or at least the monastery is sponsored by, you know, Jindox. Mm -hmm. And then there's a very, you know, systematic training that you go through. Mm -hmm. So you start from a young age and then whether you join Shedra and then you get certain skills that basically will support you, right? I mean, even though a monk is not a career, but monks have something that they can offer back to the lay community. So I think one of the things that is that the West is facing is that there's not really the monastic training on this soil occurring. For me, it was mainly a personal thing out of my own inspiration. And, but I wouldn't say that they had the monastic training totally available. But being a monk in the West, right, where there's no context for you, uh, that was really interesting. And being young, you know, where yes. so you're young. Did you, ever, did you ever spend your time as a monk in India or here in the East? Because I'm sure if you have, there must have been a transmission exchange of cultures. And you must have learned some um, business, I'm sure. By the time that I went to India at 23, I wasn't a monk anymore. But okay. um, I stayed in various temples in America. And I just want to say that um, being a monastic in the West, wherever you go, nobody has any context for you. I mean you get stared at everywhere and people don't know what you are, you know, you could be a man yes. wearing a skirt and, you know, some people thought I was a Hare Krishna. Oh, so okay. yes, I but think there is, there is a lot of, uh, you know, population that doesn't, in fact, I think it's beautiful. Um, I, I also find the tradition very beautiful. Even the songs and the pageants, I think they're beautiful as well. Yes, definitely. In general, all the religions, major religions in the world, um, they're really beautiful because all of them, they propagate the same message of love, peace, and kindness. But um, I'm yeah. very interested to know this, uh, you know, your life as a monk in, you know, um, of course, when you came back to India, when you came here to India, uh, you were not a monk anymore. But uh, did you ever learn Tibetan? How to speak in Tibetan? Yes. 
I originally, when I went to India, I went on this very big pilgrimage with the Gowan Drukpa, and there was 300 monks and nuns and 200 lay people. So we went to all of the sites of the Buddha. So we started in Sarnath, in Varanasi, where he first taught, and we went to Bodhgaya, Nalanda, all of them. And then after that, I went to Dharamsala, where I studied Tibetan intensively. But I didn't study it for that long. I studied it just for a month intensively because it was my, uh, what they call your car year, your obstacle year, you know, which we talk about in Tibetan because yeah. I'm a horse. So I went to do some retreat, you know, for the obstacles back in the West with my teacher here. Yeah, so but you must yeah, be speaking got... conversational Tibetan. Um, not so well, but, you know, no. reading is better. I mean, for me, I know more like Dharma terminology, like many words, but not so good with sentence structure and all, but mm -hmm. I definitely still plan on pursuing it more. Sure, definitely. Now, what is your idea of spirituality? Because I think a lot of us, we think that spirituality and religion are two different things, but they can actually be one. Yes, yep. and they actually can be as simple as it can be, but we complicate it. What's your idea of spirituality now that you've studied Tibetan Buddhism so meticulously over the course of many years? Well, I think even if we get into the, the word, right? Like if you say there's spirituality and something that's worldly, on some level, there has to be some difference. Otherwise, there's no sense of having a spiritual path if your worldly okay. life is already it, right? Yes. So for me, I would say the spiritual path is something that goes against the ego. It goes against mm -hmm. selfishness. And uh, spirituality is also, to me, I'm kind of old school and I'm more of a devotion oriented practitioner, which is not really common in the West, actually. And uh, I feel it's, it's having a conviction in something beyond just what you immediately see, right? Because um, whether, whatever path you are, whether you're a Hindu, whether you worship Krishna, or whether you believe in the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, there is some kind of conviction in something beyond the immediate, you know? phenomena, mm -hmm. the, what we would call gross phenomena, just the ordinary, there's some sense of conviction in whether it's karma, right? Which is to the worldly people, it's not something tangible. Like it's not mm -hmm. something that we can see. So I would say that's probably spirituality to me. Spirituality, it has to go against our habitual patterns. So like our negative emotions, our anger, our attachment, you know, if spirituality only increases your pride and your, you know, or negative emotions, it's not a spiritual path. Yes. So, and basically, I think that spirituality is a path to dismantle the ordinary concepts we have about life. You know, okay. it's to dismantle um, our grasping at things and yeah sure. you know developing ourselves in the highest sense yeah. of the word true because i think what you mentioned at the beginning is also very true about the karmic connection uh i somehow yeah. 
I feel I have a karmic connection with the goddess Tara, the green Tara. And yeah. um, right from, you know, from the beginning, I've had a very strong connection with her. Uh, now, it, this is a hilarious part because a lot of Tibetans themselves don't know the meaning of the text. A lot of us, actually, not just Tibetans. Yeah. Uh, so His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, has always encouraged young people, people who are learning Tibetan Buddhism, any religion they belong to, to always question to mm -hmm. always investigate because self-experimentation is very very important right what is your idea on that uh, about integrating these practices the, the the knowledge that is in the buddhist text and actually applying them in our everyday life yes of course that's very important because you know buddhism is one path that will kind of proudly say that you can investigate and you can question whereas some religious paths may not encourage that but I also think that it should be emphasized that the point of questioning and the point of having doubt and debate, the point mm -hmm. is not to keep doubting. And to, because one of my teachers has said, of course, question, debate. But if years and years go on and all you're doing is questioning, it's becoming excessive, you know. And sure. uh, there are two kind of, they talk about two kind of practitioners. So. There's the faith-based ones who maybe they don't know much and they just believe in the Dharma. They just have faith in Kunjuksum, they pray, they receive blessings. And then for some of us, we need logical explanation and we need reasoning. And I think when holiness is speaking, for me, like whenever it concerns like Gyaru Rinpoche and what he's saying to the world, I always take into mind his, his base is so wide. So it's you know, he talks to all kinds of religious beliefs. He talks mm -hmm. to scientists. He's not only speaking to core, you know, hardliner Buddhist practitioners. So he has a lot of skillful means too, because it's, you know what I mean? It's not to force, you know, you can't force True. conviction and devotion on anybody. But I think that the point of the analysis is to have a confident faith. It's to have experiential you know, understanding of it. And I think that if you can logically, you know, arrive at why you're doing the practice, then you can maybe be a very strong practitioner. Yes. But in the West, you know, my, in my perspective, one of the obstacles is that a lot of Westerners have a lot of intellectual knowledge about Dharma. And it's a culture where people read a lot. So they might go to the East and say, mm, these people don't know anything about Buddhism. You know, they didn't yes. hear about Majamika and this and that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the Western practitioner has devotion, actually, and actual, mm -hmm. you know, reliance on the three jewels, which is why we take refuge. Right. So, and I also want to emphasize that um, even, you know, even the senior, you know, like Himalayan population who may not be, you know, learned in all these things. It's also said, if you have a devotion, you will receive blessing. If you don't have that kind of doubtful mind, right? So I think that knowledge in Buddhism, because Buddhism is self-corrosive. It's something that dismantles itself. So knowledge is like a staircase, so sure. you have to use the stairs and each level you have to abandon to go to the next level. And then mm -hmm. finally, when you're in line, right, you abandon the reliance upon all of it. 
So, you know, it's not the means. I mean, it's the means, it's not the end, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. Very rightly said. Um, and also, I think um, what you mentioned is true because um, I've seen a lot of people, they understand the text, they read the text, yep. they also have devotion, okay? But they're not kind to people. They're doing all yeah. the evil things. So is there any use to that? Because I think the major objective of any religion, of any any sort of spiritual path that you're on, whatever that you practice, ultimately it's important to be a good human person, right? Practice it's, it's, compassion and kindness. So what is your mes- message to people who, who do that? Yes, it's very relevant. You know, I could think of a few things off the top of my head. The late Bujan Rinpoche had said that if you are naturally kind-hearted person, half of the dharma is already accomplished. So sure. some people, they, that's their nature. They're already kind-hearted, right? And some people have to work on it. Mm-hmm. And I was just listening to some teachings on Kunzing Lame Shalom the other day that Sansa Kantarimche was teaching. And in the text, it's very relevant to this. He was saying, you know, if you have spiritual signs, like you see deities in your visions, and you see deities in your dreams, and you have clairvoyance. This is not something to be excited about, and you should be very cautious about it. But if you're going against your anger, and you're seeing your selfishness, and you have more kindness to people, that's something that's definitely good. So that's definitely a danger, you know? It's, if it doesn't translate into changing your mind, it's just another obstacle that you've accumulated. Yeah. And I there's think- always... Go ahead. Yes. Yes, please go ahead. So, Pacharimbache also had this expression, you know. Apparently, they have these kind of leather butter bags in Tibet. And I guess if they dry out or something like that, basically, they become so hard. When they have the butter, they, they are soft and malleable. And he mm-hmm. said that the Dharma is a path that can change sinners into Buddhas or saints. It has that kind of power. But for the person who's jaded by Dharma, because they've heard everything and then they don't apply it, they're like that butter bag. Nothing can penetrate them. And I think that's one of the biggest obstacles that a so-called, you know, more whatever practitioners that we face is because we've heard it before. So it's not fresh. You know, you hear all the time, all sentient beings, and you need compassion to everyone. John Sampa, we're here to enlighten all beings. And you can become jaded to it if you hear it all of the time. And I think what's beautiful about Holiness Dalai Lama is, right, of course, he's believed to be Chen Rezik's emanation, and that's how, you know, Tibetan Buddhists regard him, who's the manifestation of compassion, is that when I was in Dharamsala, you know, especially the youth, they don't know much about Buddhism. Yes. But I through agree. His holiness, which is, you know, also n- not good, but through His Holiness, they at least say, well, I think Dharma is having a kind heart. And, you know, they're hearing this because His Holiness is always emphasizing it. So, yeah, that's very important. Yes, and I think each one of us, we are Buddhas, right? We all have the yeah. seed of bodhisattvas in our hearts uh, we just don't realize it yes definitely and that's one of the major teachings in Mahayana is really the Buddha nature you know and speaking about the difference between the West and the East that's such a stark contrast between original sin you know like how it all started was you were sinful and the Buddha nature which is that your nature is perfect 
it's never been corrupted, even though we have all of these defilements and selfishness. It's like the sun is always shining, even though there are clouds that cover it. It's always there. And it's, you know, it definitely, it's, I think it combats depression, low self-esteem, because that's what all the teachers are telling us. It's like, in one way, the practices are very advanced and they're very complicated, but they're always, they're never telling you, you know, you're down here and the Buddhas are up here. They're saying you have the same Buddha nature as the Buddha. That's why you can do it. And that's your sense of encouragement and enthusiasm, you know, and relating with other people and other beings, no matter how bad they look, no matter how discouraging it is, knowing that they have the Buddha nature. They say that bodhisattvas, when they meet people that are very angry, selfish, their attitude is like a gold miner. They see the gold ore, it's covered in rocks and dirt, and it doesn't look anything like gold. But a trained goldsmith, they will only see, oh, this is gold, this is valuable. And that's how bodhisattvas look at beings, mm -hmm. all full of defilements and negative emotions, but they see the Buddha nature. They don't pay attention to any of that, you know? Sure. I think that's true. That's very true. Now, um, I think we're all quite flippant about uh, the way of life that we lead. Um, and I'm sure your life must have been diametrically very different before uh, the yeah. entrance of your master. Uh, who was your mentor? Well, I had quite a few. I don't know if I should go through all of them or just the main ones. I guess the principal Whatever ones, right? Like. Yes. Okay, so when I had started out and I had taken refuge, I mentioned my refuge teacher was Kempo Karta Rinpoche, who was a very elderly lama from Kham. And what was interesting about him was that he was a Kempo, so he was obviously highly trained. He finished his training pre-invasion Tibet, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. And though he was not a Tuku, which normally most Rinpoches are almost always reincarnate lamas, he was given the title Rinpoche, and he was given the title Chuje Lama by the 16 Karmapa. And uh, for me, I think being young, being wild, being undisciplined, to meet a teacher who was a monastic, who was so disciplined, who was so, you know, the older generation lamas, they're very hardcore in a good way that I think is lacking in the younger lamas. Like their grit for the Dharma is incredibly intense. And, um, you know, they could endure pain and hardship and all that kind of stuff for Dharma. And I think it made a really big impact on my mind. And I think that was one of the major reasons why I wanted to ordain. And, um, you know, on some level, it feels like when you're in the world and in the normal life, when you really meet a holy being, there's something that's just unquestionable about it, you know? So that was my main teacher when I was staying at the monastery. And then later on, uh, when I was at the end of my monasticism, I met uh, Dujun Rinpoche's youngest son, Dungzi Shepandawa Norba Rinpoche, who was an incredible master. I mean, I don't know what the terms would mean to people who aren't familiar with Buddhism, but I would say he was like a drup a Mahasiddha. He really was like such a powerful, blazing person. And, you know, when he would get into all of the you know, aspects of tantric Buddhism, which are a little more removed from our immediate reality. He had such confidence and conviction. And one could tell that he has experienced all of these in his practice. You know, it wasn't just a theory, you know, like you were talking about 
studying it. Um, he was incredible. He was a master of Salung, which is pretty rare because actually not of the yogic, the yogas and the energy body um, practices of Tibetan Buddhism because not a lot of lamas are trained in it and not a lot of them are trained from a young age. So he related a lot of teachings to the channels, you know, Tsalung and Tigle, which is quite unusual. And he was just incredible. For me, one thing is that uh, with some teachers, I felt, which is just my projection, but it feels like maybe the monks and the lamas are doing the Dharma, and then you might be a lay person, or you're kind of on the outside. And there's a feeling that it's not something that you maybe can accomplish in this life. But I felt with Shempen Rinpoche, when he spoke to students, there was such a confidence that you can be a yogi, you can be a great practitioner, you can really do these practices, and I'm going to give them to you, you know? And he used to say, you know, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but there's this whole concept of termas, and they have, because they're revealed very recently and for the times, they have a very short lineage. So, you know, it's believed the longer the lineage, there may have been some individuals in the lineage that had, you know, made, had, fought, you know, misdeeds and sort of impacted the blessings. But when it's more direct and it's a shorter lineage, um, the blessings are very immediate. And used to tell people, you know, it's from my father to me to you. So it really can't get that much more direct than that. And he was incredible. He had visions of deities since he was a child. I mean, he was just so impressive. And I think he gave me a little bit of confidence as a practitioner, you know, not that I am and I don't regard myself, but um, just that you can do it, you know. It's not just like, oh, you know, there are these great masters and that's something removed from me. It's really the confidence that you can get realization, get to practice and do it. And when he used to give wongs, he used to say, strike while the iron's hot. Now you've received it, go on a retreat. So there was such, you know, an enthusiasm, and he was just such a pleasure to be with. And then uh, later from that, I studied with Dungze Garabdorje Rinpoche, who's Shempa Rinpoche's brother's uh, younger son. And I don't know if you're familiar with the trauma practice that's getting very popular in you know, the Himalayas these days, Troma Nagma, which is a chip practice. And um, that's a, I don't know to what degree I should get into all the details or our time here. So True, but I think uh, for Tibetans and for non-Tibetans, uh, this, this is going to be amazing. So uh, considering the current pandemic situation, I think we're all so negative about the whole situation and mental yeah. health issue is something that we're all facing. We're all so frustrated with the whole thing because there's a lack of dynamism in our lives now. And our human mechanism is such and so instinctive that we want to keep moving. We're constantly moving machines, whether it's physical yeah. or mental. And we are constantly wavering. Our thoughts are constantly coming and going away. So what is your advice on mental health um, stability? How can people take charge of their mental health uh, from a Buddhist perspective? since you've spent so much time studying Tibetan Buddhism? Well, I really feel from the Buddhist perspective, you know, there is the idea of Korwa, which is basically the conditioned existence we're in as 
ignorant beings, uh, it's always unpredictable and we never know. And from the you know idea of impermanence, it's like a lot of us talk about impermanence and um, we have a very gross idea of it, which is like, I will die one day or my car will break down one day. But when something like the corona hits and the world is shifted overnight, know. that impermanence exists on that level. I mean, it exists on every level. You know, it's like, you know, just think of nuclear war. It's like we have such a clinging to the way that things are going. And, uh, but the thing is that a lot of people take impermanence as a negative, but actually it's a positive teaching because mm -hmm. what they're saying is that it makes you appreciate life. If you think that life is impermanent, then you will appreciate the time that you have with others and you will be more appreciative of life. So one thing I think is that it was a really good chance for us to develop our understanding of impermanence on a deeper level and not just on a superficial level. And what we can do about it, I mean, obviously from the like a uh, health perspective, following all of the protocols and we see what happens when people ignore them. Right. And, you know, there's of course meditation is very helpful. Like Shine Shamata meditation to calm the mind. If people are having like anxiety and really flipping out about it. And, a lot of teachers have prescribed different prayers for the times, and you had mentioned drama. So there's a particular version called Padmashwari, which is for epidemics. And for me, I really found praying to be very useful during this time, you know. And I think in these days, there is an attitude because now our education, you know, like talking about the difference between spirituality and before people were spiritual, you know, maybe they didn't know much, but a spiritual mind was not necessarily a rare way of relating to life. And now with modern education, you know, indirectly we're trained in a kind of, you know, doubting approach. And we feel like prayer is almost like a dirty word, like, oh, you pray and you think something's going to happen. And I really feel that prayer is profound and because in Buddhism, everything is about motivation and sure. everything starts with a thought, and no matter what it is in the world. I mean, you could look at a sky rise building, you could look at an airplane that started as a thought in somebody's mind to make this thing, to do this thing. So on every level, and if you're praying, you know, you're engaged in a very positive state of mind and altruistic and devotion. And to say that that doesn't have an effect, it's not even logical. Because how would, you know, using your mind in such a way not have an effect if the mind is the forerunner of everything? And for me, it's really been a time to really take refuge, you know, to take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha because normally we take refuge in so many other things, which as they're showing, they're unreliable. You know, it's an impermanent phenomena and we think that, you know, it's going to be our source of stability and happiness. And now look, you know. Also, I think uh, I have done this to my mother. Uh, in Tibetan, we have yuan chip, right? We, we have seven water that we offer, yeah. seven cubes of water. So I would always ask my mother, I'm going to do it. So and my mother didn't have an answer. So I was like, I want an answer for that. What is that? Yeah. So I went to different monks, asked them what it was. And until I got my answer, I was not satisfied because... From my perspective, I thought if 
okay, if I knew the answer to that, maybe my conviction will grow stronger. Now, I think yeah. every individual is different, but what you mentioned is also 100% very true. Doubting on a constant basis can actually um, you know, yes. sort of block that intent because ultimately your intention is something that really matters. So when you pray with a good intent, the energy bounces back from the universe. Yes? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. So your devotion, your motivation, and um, maybe a little bit of questioning as well helps. That's my personal bias, but uh, but what, what you mentioned is true, very, very true. Now, I'm also very uh, curious to know, what is your definition of success? Because all the guests that we've had on the Tenzin show have, have derived their own um, you know, definition of success. So it could mean really different for different people, right? What is your uh, idea and dimension of success? And what are your principles of success? Yeah, as you mentioned, I think success is really relative. You know, for a child in Africa, maybe getting clean water is success. For us, yes. maybe, you know, um, on a basic level, I would say using this life in a meaningful way and benefiting others. And, you know, we talk about Milu Rinchen, which is that mm -hmm. human existence is very precious because, you know, even if you look at animals, they might be more confined to just their instinct and finding food. But we have the opportunity to contemplate, to reflect. So I would say success, you know, in the spiritual sense, I would say it's, you know, it's changing your habits. It's you know, making a positive change. It's loosening the grip that we have on things being so real and true and fixating on that, which makes us, you know, irritable and selfish. Yeah. And um, I, yes, I would say success is something that benefits ourselves and other people. If we go through life, because even with like, of course, in this reality, we have financial, you know, obligations and needs, and we have to go with our level, you know, we can all live in a cave. But um, if you don't have any contentment, like the Buddhist definition of being wealthy, which you might be interested in with this show is that the mind that says, I have enough, when that thought occurs in a person, that person is wealthy. And until that point, you're not wealthy by definition. If you're a multimillionaire and you think, I don't have enough, this is not enough, how are you wealthy? Because your mind is not wealthy. And someone yeah. that's poor who thinks this is enough, they are a wealthy person. So I think, you know, con a content mind. And yeah, it's like if you go through life, like for me with my relations with people, and I feel I can exercise more patience and just be a more helpful person that's successful, you know, because otherwise, what is success? What is the use of your human intellect and your life if you are not useful to other people, right? Yep. Yes. And to absolutely. me, it's, you know, the Dharma is very vast. And in, in one way, it's, it's complicated to understand. Um, but in another level, it can be very simple, you know, like you talked about having a good heart. And so, yeah, I think that is what I would say is success. Therefore, I think um, perhaps if the world appears the way you view it, right? Yes, so definitely. it all depends on your own uh, eye lenses. The way you view things is going to appear like that. 
Uh, so thank you very much, Oginla, uh, for being on the show. It was a sure, pleasure you. having you. I am sure that people are going to resonate with what you have to say, what you just said, and they have taken back something meaningful and worthy and integrate uh, these practices, these teachings, this point of view in their own life. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. See you okay, soon. Okay, bye. See you.